Day before Thanksgiving, man. Yeah, we always like. <laughs> we're gonna release this two months now from now. Yeah, who cares? You're, I don't you know. always do. So you always say things where I'm like, well, you know, he's not gonna come out for a couple months. But okay. We're so here we are. We're we're, uh, we're talking with Ruby Zeffo, the CPO of Uber. Ble- blessed to have that this uh, guest. How cool is that? So cool. Um, I we didn't get to mention this, but her Twitter feed is amazing. Also, is it? I gotta follow yeah. her on Twitter. I don't think I do. We've been. I've known her for a while. I think I met her through Anne at Nike. I don't remember how we. I think it was through Anne at Nike. Um, and Anne Bradley, who's the uh, chief privacy officer, fancy Nike person. Yeah. Um, and I think they're good friends. Um, she's super smart, man, and sort of like uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Ex- she knows the things. She's experienced like, completely. I mean, so she was. Uh, Sun Microsystems. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then at Intel as well, doing security legal, AI legal. Privacy. And like when these companies were at the forefront, like they're still important companies. Well, Sun Microsystems is Oracle, but like like they're they're still like important. But like there was a time when Sun was like out in front and same thing with Intel. And I think she was there at those times. Intel still is. And uh, it, it's so many amazing privacy People have come through those companies, exactly. Especially if you include Oracle in the mix as the the son. Like we've actually talked to a bunch of them that came up through that. They're they're the first companies, to be honest, that we're thinking about these things. And when we talk with her, we talk about kind of the ability to have lofty conversations. Like those companies are the ones that were elevating privacy, security, ML into the consciousness of people well before it was popular to tweet about it. You know, yeah. Shout out to IBM too. They were way out in front. Yeah, um, yeah. Then there's a couple others. Microsoft started cooking pretty warm early too. I mean, there's a few, but yeah, you're right. Like these logos are like Vanguard, Vanguard companies. Yeah, it's funny to think about it a little bit because I could think we associate some of these companies that have been around longer as kind of being like dinosaury or something. Whereas you, in your mind, you're sort of like, well, Uber and Twitter and Facebook. Right. And Google right. are the companies that like established privacy as a thing because no. they're hot tech companies and like, but no, it's no. The, the game's been around for a while. A long time, long time. And you're right. I like the, I like what you said, because there are a lot of Intel people, uh, people from Intel, a lot of people from Oracle, Sun, whatever, um, IBM for sure. Like that are still heavy hitters, like still heavy hitters out yeah, in the world doing important things. Um, but yeah, they laid the foundation for the rest of us for sure. I think it goes to show that you know you establish this, this privacy stuff is really more just about establishing the muscle, and then you like flex that muscle in different ways over the course of your career if you're kind of like a person that thinks that way. And I do think privacy people do tend to think sort of more on the long the lines of. Uh, you know, thinking about people's rights and feelings and thought and how things impact people and acting as a bit of a pr- protector, you know, in our role as as uh, the people thinking about privacy at companies. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to talk to her, man. This is going to be fun. This is a good one. All right. Here it is. Here it is.
All right, here we are. We're here. We're here. We're here. Yes. That's, we got, that's better than not being here. <laughs> we got re Thanksgiving energy. Oh, yeah. Because afterward, I'm not going to have any. <laughs> exactly. I'm cooking black beans upstairs right now. Like oh, they are yes. Cuban black beans, of course. And the house smells of heaven. But yeah. yes. Yes. My brother in law is Cuban American. And so maybe we should compare black beans sometime because the only way to do it is make it yourself. That's I'm, I'm making them by hand the long way, the way my mom taught me. Yep. I don't have beans at our feast. I have to rethink this. <laughs> your, your feast sounds uh, Protestant. Well I'm, making, <laughs> well, well, I'm Jewish. So what is, what is that? <laughs> actually, actually, I have, uh, I have um, the, rest of the, the recipe and the ingredients for my great grandmother's spice cake downstairs, which is one of the main things my kids look forward to. So after Do we you make have, it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it's I'm good pissed off now because I, this is the first I hear about this. We've been friends for like a long time. So. He is not FedExing you any then because I was just going to ask. The icing, Ruby, is really difficult. Like that, that's the one thing about the cake. It's actually, it's not, it's like boiled icing on a double boiler. It's got a cool and then it gets crackly on the outside. It's really good, but it's labor intensive. And so I've had to, we're, we were talking earlier about our family history a little bit before we clicked record. Like that's, that's, one of those generational recipes like with the very difficult icing with the like ingredients that they would have used in 1950 when my great grandmother was making it which i have to adjust for like to, you know 2021 but it's awesome my kids love it well, i hope you're not adding kale <laughs> i feel like that's what all the kids add to all the things it takes too long to chew i'm too lazy for oh kale. god i fucking hate kale <laughs> oh. Can we talk about how Ruby's background moves and is like fucking the yeah. metaverse? Do that. Oh, so yeah, we have new Uber values and build with heart is my favorite. And so our mm. corporate team put together really nice Zoom backgrounds. Awesome. And this one, yeah, this one is my favorite. It's gentle and I find it very calming. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I thought you were trying to hypnotize me here for a second, but it's good. It's really cool. I, like I will much. later. And the, and the Cincinnati Bengals ensemble is like, you know, like, it's oh, kept, there's like Bengals, are you kidding me? This is the San Francisco Giants, my friend. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry, the Hell San Francisco no. Giants ensemble um, is big. I work with a guy named Adam Huff. He's a huge uh, San Francisco Giants fan. Um, I'm a, I'm not. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm mourning Buster Posey's retirement right now and also coupling it with an ugly Christmas sweater, which seems appropriate. I like that very much. This is good. Uh, we're gonna, this is good, a good intro to our guest, Ruby Zephyr. <laughs> yeah. Super good intro. Chief Privacy Officer at Uber. Thanks for being here. Um, I, I want to finish our quick discussion and intro about like family and, and family story because that was super interesting. Like, Tell us a little bit about that, and and Pedro, you will be interested too in what we were beginning to talk about. Okay, uh, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, I'm white, and so I'm privileged, but um, I'm not that far removed from you know understanding what it, the immigrant experience was like. My grandparents came over actually ten years apart because they couldn't afford to come over at the same time. So my oldest aunt was born in the old country, which is now in Kosovo, but they were Croatian. And, you know, my dad growing up, he still, as an adult, ate the chicken innards in the neck and everything because he was second youngest. And that was what he got. 
and never got to go to a birthday party because they couldn't afford a present and, you know, had an outhouse and a hundred year old house and all this kind of stuff that is hard for me to imagine. Um, the sad part was the pressure back then when he was a young man to assimilate was so strong, right? He just wanted to sort of get rid of the trappings of his ethnic past, you know, so he wouldn't teach us the language. He spoke it with my grandparents, of course, but he, you know, they, they were sort of taught to assimilate into this country and not be different. And that makes me very sad. Um, very, thinking very about sad. that, right? And so on my wall right here, I actually have my grandmother's wedding clothes, which are giant, brightly colored, you know, pantaloons and a little embroidered vest and this kind of stuff you would never see today, um, just to remember our heritage. But um, I feel very lucky, you know, that, that we have a much nicer, more comfortable lifestyle. But but I think about that a lot and the journey for my grandmother to come over who didn't speak any English with a kid and trying to find her way all the way from this tiny town to Illinois. And it makes me feel like we're from very strong, resilient stock, at least. And I teach my kids, you know, they know they are extremely privileged. Yeah. So. yeah. And what a beautiful story. Like, um, and you're right. Andy mentioned earlier, like this will resonate with me and it does. I mean, the story of your grandparents is the story of my parents. You know, we came over when I was three years old. My father died on the way. Um, you know, you know, my mother didn't speak the language, died really struggling to learn English. She, you know, she got to America in her late twenties with a son and was a widow and did the best she could. And now here we are on the zoom, you know? So I'm very grateful. I will say, um, your point about loss of heritage rings really powerfully with me because it's something I'm very intentional and adamant about preserving at work and in my life. Uh, uh, the times are different now and I'm not going to give up my parents' heritage. It's not happening. And the greatest gift my mother ever gave me, which is actually non-conventional uh, in the point that you made that people try to assimilate and like, you know, uh, do what, what you have to do to sort of like fit in and be successful. Um, the greatest gift my mom ever gave me was forcing me to stick with learning Spanish, how to read it, how to write it, how to communicate and i speak fluent spanish I, yeah. spanish is my first language um i can switch to spanish right now and have a full-fledged conversation and like that's the greatest treasure my mom yeah you know that's well, like that. what a beautiful the, gift the pressure comes from from his his you know friends and stuff right my grandmother exactly. really never learned to speak english very well at all i still make some of her recipes she made everything from scratch as you can imagine including phyllo dough don't even try that if you've never done it <laughs> but you know this pressure from the rest of society on him you know which is why his home life was very different than when he left of course, the house. Of course. Mm -hmm. how much do you think uh for for each of you do you think that you think about these kinds of things when uh you know, in doing your job as the head of privacy um, at corporations or head of, you know, policy, um, when you're thinking about a very important topic, which we talk about here a lot, which is like ensuring that there's global fairness. When we talk about, we we're even a small company and we deal with a lot of other countries. So like in construing their laws or their norms or their like morality or trying to do that how much do you guys sort of reflect inward about like where what you i don't know your history or your yourselves when you kind of think about like let me apply those things in my work life it comes up for me tangentially but it must maybe more for you well it comes up a lot for me you know we're a we're, we're an interesting crossroads of technology and physical world right so 
we're a technology company with a platform, but the platform moves into the physical world. So we have a lot of safety concerns. Um, and so I think a lot about it. And I think privacy pros are the perfect people to be thinking about it. You're, you're, you're using individual data. These are identifiable people. And so I think we're the perfect people and well positioned to be advocating for impact specifically on marginalized communities. And so I think about it a lot. And we're evaluating products and services anyway. So one thing we're beta testing right now to see if we could do it is using the privacy impact assessment intake process for our um, group that does the equality initiatives and the fairness testing that we want to you know, do with our products. And so if we can get all the folks who funnel in stuff for review in one place, it's so much easier for them. It also gives us cross insight into how the fairness initiatives are going as well as the privacy initiatives. So we're, we're starting to do that right now. And I'm really excited about it because I love the fact we hired a specialist to do that. And it's really important. It's just as important now as forever. Honestly, I think my most disappointing thing in life is how little progress we've made for underserved communities since, you know, my young adulthood. What a great idea, though, leveraging existing infrastructure and business process to grow into an area that needs growth into. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's a fertile space to like, I don't want to say co-mingle, but definitely like bring the fairness discussion along, which um, sadly to the point Ruby makes is it's not new, but it's just now getting traction in a meaningful way, in my opinion. Um, I think there's another layer to your question though, Andy, which is about privacy itself. So privacy and fairness sort of can go hand in hand and be complementary discussions. But how we apply privacy norm, privacy rules, I don't think should be homogenous. I think it, 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 we need to be more sophisticated about how we think about privacy and realize that there's geographical and cultural variants about expectations and about what's appropriate and what's not. And the second piece is how you communicate privacy is also different geographically and culturally. Um, and we need to do a better job of all of that. I am very, I say it on this podcast 5,000 times an episode. Um, I am very worried that we will impose on the rest of the world a notion of privacy that is extremely male, extremely Western, extremely like individualistic, where most people on earth don't live, aren't, aren't I, I don't know if, actually, I don't think are any of the three. I think there's more women on, in the world than men. I know that there's more everything else than European. Um, and, I, and I know the West is smaller than the rest of the world from a population perspective. So like, I worry about it. I don't want to use the word imperialism, but I worry about like this imposition of values that I see happen in discussions. Like there's this like matter of fact, you know, uh, obvious, this is what needs to happen type attitude sometimes amongst our colleagues um, mm -hmm. that I think is uh, not inclusive. Yeah, I agree with you. It's really important to work with a, a diverse group of people. First of all, I've been schooled by people around the world just because I'm American and they make assumptions and tell me what privacy is and you don't understand privacy. I'm like, we, we've never even met. Um, so I, I completely agree with you in terms of the obstinacy. And it's funny because to be so obstinate in an area where it's so personal, I mean, even in the same household, you have very different you know, ideas about what privacy means, that the group I work in is purposely cross-functional. So as you can imagine, naturally, I'm working with engineers and product and policy and our DPO and all these people cross-functionally. But when you look at the group and we have a monthly meeting with, with the leads of all of it, 
we've got people from all over the world. We've got all, you know, races, different genders, different ages, you know, and so it gives me at least some comfort that we're trying our best to get different viewpoints in from around the world and different, you know, types of attitudes about things. But it's, you know, that that's never done, right? And it's evolving. You get these new technologies. I'm a Luddite who's been working in the Silicon Valley my whole, or not in tech my whole career in the Silicon Valley for most of it. And, you know, how, how I deal with, you know, I had a guy installing my, a new receiver for all my entertainment stuff. And I'm like, yeah, there's certain things I don't want tracking me. But somebody else embraces it all. I met a guy who said everything in his house he wants connected. So then you have that, you know, confluence of culture and technology and the speed of processing and big data all coming together at once. And it's changing all the time. I've now gotten used to a Polaroid camera. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a late adopter of certain technologies. And you're just adopting Polaroid cameras. We got to have a whole nother episode. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I was an early adopter of, a, of an iPod because I love music so much, but other things not so much, you know, and so. Um, but you get to choose, right? Like, but I think your point is the one that is the most important point, which is privacy is not about rules and like enforcing like sort of dogmatic views. It's really about giving people control over themselves and letting them determine their own fate within uh, like some framework of protection, right? Like your point is so good. Uh, your examples are so good. Like, you know, I'm more apprehensive about some types of privacy sharing than others. Some people, uh, excuse me, data sharing than others. Some people are, look, I don't care. Like I want to share it all. I want all the bells and whistles. I want my house to do all the things. And I'm fine with Amazon and Facebook and Apple and Google and everybody knowing my shit. And I don't care. That's person A. Person B might be like, I want it all off. I don't want any trackers. I don't want anything. I'm not going to use Facebook. I'm not going to use the internet. Or I want to use Facebook, but I want to use it within these types of, you know, configurations. Like we have to focus on user control. That is the most important thing. You run one of the most popular apps on earth, I'm assuming. Definitely one of the most like, like utility apps, right? Like car hailing, um, like letting people choose how their data is processed in a way that they can understand and, and make meaningful choices. That's gotta be the goal. Not like locking Uber down and not allowing Uber to use data from people who are perfectly willing to let them do it. Um, as long as they understand what it's being used for. Like what's, you know, who cares? Yeah, I think if you can at least establish the baseline fiduciary duty that a company has to people, Correct. so regardless of what their choices are, it's not a bad choice and an unexpected impact on them. You're absolutely right. And so that it's not exhausting them with consent all day long and they just want to curl up in a ball, you know, with a bottle of Jack Daniels. So there has yeah. to be more more responsibility on the companies to be doing the right thing after which you've got your reasonable set of choices that are easy to understand and toggle. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's what I meant by like this framework of protection where if a, like we talked about this on the last episode, Andy, like focus on enforcing bad actions, right? Like this is like, like if we create a framework that companies, organizations have to operate within that has these normative expectations about how data is processed, collected, used, stored, retained, deleted, um, and then inside of that framework, we give users the choice to make all the meaningful decisions they can. Like that seems to me like the best outcome because you get, you maximize user choice, but you also have sort of like a safety net of, to your point, like protection of 
ensuring that the corporations don't give all these choices and then do whatever they want anyway. Think, like that's obviously not a good outcome either. Do you think there need to be norms between between apps or do you think there needs to be a centralized place where people can make privacy elections? Like at this point, I, we haven't gotten that yet. And I don't know if that's going to happen ever or whether that's going to take a federal you know, US law for that to happen. But I wonder a lot, like should Ubers, because I, I agree, there should be more like interfacing and choices and things that are happening inside apps and more transparency. And I've talked ad nauseum about how there needs to be innovation and kind of the UI UX around privacy. It's just too, it's too like unclear and, and weird for people. But I guess I'm wondering, does it do, be interesting to hear from you both? Like, do you think that there needs to be similarity and crossover and kind of thought partnership between like a, a Facebook app or and an Uber app and pick your pick your pick your popular app, you know, should it be some sort of like similar level of because I agree also like I don't think the GDPR should dictate that. Yeah, I agree. I think it's too hard to do what you're saying for a couple of reasons. It's so contextual and even your trust in competing companies may differ. And so you don't want them to have the same, you know, toggle for everything. Um, so I don't see that happening really, but it should be. And I think we're moving towards this. At least we're trying to move towards it. You'll see next year. But, you know, I do think it should be easier to find everything in one place. You know, the way you grow up as a company, it can just be very difficult technologically to do it as simply as you want. And it takes time to rejigger things from their historical ways into something that's easier for people to use. But I think that's where we're all trying to move so that you have you know, privacy centers and things where you can find everything and quickly make your choices so that it's not such a burden to locate things. And we keep putting more and more in the app for people to just go do. We put a lot of non-legally required things in the app. You, know, you can just go explore your data if you want. You wanna see the most popular things and not download all your data, which you can also do. People just really want to see, I wonder how many rides I took last year. You know, we put that in an easy place to find. So that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. But I, I like your idea, but I don't think it's probably going to come to fruition. And like Apple and Google, try it, try it, right? Like Apple lets me turn off location services. I can just turn it off. That for the, I don't know how many apps I have on my phone. That's it. I, I'm going to guess 100. I can just turn location services off for everybody, including Apple. Boom, toggled off. That doesn't work, okay? Because I need to like use Google Maps, which I love. I need to use, you know, whatever, uh, DoorDash, whatever it is, like uh, or so, Uber Eats, so, yeah, Uber Eats, <laughs> right? Uber like Google Maps. All of these apps need my location. Like, how do I hail an Uber without like them knowing where? Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? And so, like, it's it it, it doesn't work. And so, what ends up happening is all the settings on Apple are toggled to on. <laughs> because then you go in and you make the choice. So the question to me is then what's the point of that choice anyway? Like, like I, if I have one app installed on my phone that I want to share one of the like six or seven toggles with, I have to toggle all on, um, or I have to go in through and select as Apple allows you to do, by the way, and inside the apps you can do as well, go in and like go through the process of toggling things on and off. I do that, but I'm a privacy yeah. nerd. I don't me think... Too. I don't think the flashlight app needs to know where I'm at, period. <laughs> that guy. I just don't think so. Like, sorry, flashlight app. I don't think TikTok needs to know where I am. So I don't let yeah. them. I, you know, um, I just don't think they need it. Snapchat either. I don't let Snapchat yeah. know my location. I just don't want to. But your point, Uber, Uber Eats, you know, all of the ones. They, I give Facebook my address, my location. I give it to Instagram because I like to post and say I'm here. I like mm. wherever, whatever restaurant. 
Yeah, I don't so, do that. <laughs> yeah, I do. But like, I guess the point is like, I think I was just thinking about norms. You know, I'm, I'm, yeah. I, Ruby, I'm not necessarily saying like, these apps are going to come together and, and <laughs> have the exact same or, or even, but I think um, I, I do wonder about like, okay, these are some norms. And like I think we have, some, we have some, so, sort of, but more, more like more real, like nutrition label is just kind of like uh -uh. something and everybody's going to have a different label. And I always decide yeah. what's norm. You want everybody to collaborate on it? Yeah, I don't see the norms. I mean, like, even take advertising. I like, I, I, I turn ads off almost everywhere, but not in my food recommendations because I don't want, I don't eat fast food. So I actually love the apps in my food delivery apps because they, you know, they're more attuned to my tastes and I'm okay with that, you know? Yeah. So that's just an example, but norms are hard. Yeah. Norms are hard. Norms are hard. And at some point, like, norms, sort of become a they can become oppressive and i i mean that like in the like functionality sense so like i don't know man you know simplicity and like um simplicity is not at odds with lots of steps and, and i think like we want to make things as fast and as easy for people but you also don't want to water it down to where it's meaningless and i see that sometimes It's hard. This is a hard problem. And like, I worry that governments are going to fix it for us because that's the worst outcome. Yeah, but uh, agreed. But we also have companies trying to fix it for us, as yeah, you alluded to earlier, in ways that aren't really working either. So exactly. I'm not sure exactly. what to do other than do your best in our field until we see how it evolves. Yeah. What's the over under on a privacy law in the US? And would that, would that help? And, and over under in what time period? Two years? No. Yeah, I'm with him on an omnibus bill. There's just too much um, being argued about right now. I think something will happen in the next two years, even if it's a lame duck privacy shield quasi replacement, um, just because the calls for action are becoming pretty loud and we've seen um, some uptick in activity on it, but what that little beast may look like is anybody's guess. Yeah, like Ruby, is that just, I mean, that's just a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. Yes, like, yes, and why I never um, certified to Privacy Shield anyway, because I knew from the start it wasn't gonna last long. Um, so, <laughs> but you know, we, we need to make some movement on this whole international data transfer thing, which uh, is really annoying anyway. It's a political like football yeah. exercise. It frustrates me to no end. Um, I was more deeply involved in other roles. Here I'm not as involved on that specific. Here at Meta, I'm not involved on in that specific work, but like, God, I used to get frustrated at this because it's just political back and forth garbage. And it's a like it's it's held hostage in a way, I think. Um, oh yeah. I think it I think the real battle. Um, boils down to trust, power, economic and otherwise, and data access for when you move into the data localization front, right? That's just about data access for most of the countries insisting on it. And any decent security pro knows that having the data in your own backyard does not make it more secure at all. In fact, quite the opposite for some of these regimes wanting it. So I think it's the most annoying thing because it's not a realistic way of looking at data flows. It's 
or even facts as to how government surveillance actually works in various exactly. countries. And there's no egalitarian look at that, right? It's just the US is the punching bag right now. Exactly. And I, I fear we're hampering innovation by giving some countries an inappropriate thumb on this scale because they're mad. You know, the US ran away with the internet because of the way we, you know, decided to, to handle these issues. Yes, I mean, I, I, I think you're exactly right. I don't know that we ran away with the internet. We invented the internet and invested in it, right? But and while other other folks didn't see the value. That's what I mean. Yeah, I know, I know. But, but, but I'll say to your exact point, part of the reason it happens here, not there, is because you take this approach. <laughs> like, this is part of the reason. Like, hello? You know, like, I mean, like, if the number one thing you export, and I'm a very liberal-minded person, but if the number, thing, the number one thing you're exporting is regulation and rules, and imposing that on the world like that's not a business friendly approach yeah. uh you know and so like then you which is fine you don't want to take that approach that's fine but then don't complain and say well why are there no you know why aren't there 50 tech companies headquartered in our region well this is why fam like this is why like sorry would um, you say um would you say though I, I agree with you would you say though that this new you know more vocal outcry um, against surveillance and against companies hoovering up data and not being good stewards and the antitrust concerns that something should be done for the I people who don't like it? I think we should be vigilant against corporate consolidation and power and influence over human beings. And antitrust is one of the levers to pull to make that happen. And I think all that work should be done. And I'm supportive of, look, I'm extreme. I, I'm, the thing I'm the most distrustful of is government. The second thing I'm the most distrustful of is corporations. Okay. So like, they're very close to each other. So I think like vigilance over both is really important. The difference I see, and I've worked in government and in big corporations. So I have the context. The grand hypocrisy of government, in my opinion, oh, this is all governments, is you know, do as I say, not as I do, right? So like the Europeans are really frustrated with like the, uh, the surveillance legal apparatus in the United States. Cool, they are the one region in the world besides maybe China that has an even more robust <laughs> like surveillance apparatus with incredible powers, especially during emergency situations to essentially do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want. Like Five Eyes is, and you know, if you Google that and go read about what that was and sort of still is, is a, to me, like evidence of like the grand hypocrisy of like, we don't want the United States using EU citizen data for all of this shit without all of these processes and we need safeguards, but we'll do it. I mean, have you been to London? Because London is a surveillance state. Like it's unbelievable. And like young black, like Londoners get stopped by police because of face scans. Like, I mean, you can, there's a vice documentary on this that is fascinating about like how, like essentially disproportionately people of color are stopped by police in London due to like uh, their closed circuit camera triggering system, whatever, that facial recognition system they built. Like we don't have anything like that in the United States. So like you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. So it's political, to me, it's like political football. And I don't know why they picked this thing, but that's what it is. It's frustrating. Because your point about innovation is very persuasive, which is like we got to we have to have protections. We have to make sure that there's controls and transparency in where data is going and how it's being used. Of course, um, you know, setting up blockers that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. When things get stuck, the world the world freezes. 
the evidence of that right now is in like the ocean. Like there's like, look at the supply chain problem we have now. And I create that problem with data. Why? Why? You see, these issues are political. Do they? You guys are in much bigger orgs than me. Do these issues bubble up to the management team and the board? Or because like my experience is like, like in a venture tech setting, they're not even aware of these issues. They're aware of privacy. They're aware of, you know, our, our data asset. They're aware of, you know, the impact it would have on diligence and an exit and all that kind of stuff. But they're not necessarily like if I got into this with them, you know, maybe they would have a passing interest in it. But is that how much is this stuff coming up, you know, at the management team meetings and board and stuff? Yeah, well, for us, um, it does come up, you know, both the CISO and I report out to the board. But um, as, as you know, just because of the press, um, data security and all the breaches and all of that was the OG kind of in what the board started caring about, um, you know, years ago. And I, that's still a concern, right? It still makes headlines and it's still a concern. But I do think the, ter- the tide did turn a while ago when people really started understanding that they have no idea what's happening with their data and you know why are those shoes following me around on the internet well in my case it's always shoes but um you know and and really those concerns started coming to life and that meant that politicians constituents started complaining and then they started caring and then it became more of a thing and then you ended up with many more news articles now on how data is being collected and shared um than data breaches at least that's what i see so I think um, it's grown even more important as the impact to the business has greatly been impacted most recently with all of these new laws and self-regulation efforts, some of which we alluded to earlier, like ads and cookies, that's a game changer for most businesses. Um, AI and ML, something people constantly don't understand. I'm sorry, but it's not even AI, it's all ML right now. Exactly. Um, and data transfers, which we just talked about. So. Um, in some ways, Uber's past is lucky for me because we got religion early on why both of these things are important and our executives do care. And, you know, I will take things up the chain that I think are important for our executives to know about. That's awesome. And obviously I'm at Meta, it's, I mean, we're the, usually the one getting sued. <laughs> so like we're definitely, there's definitely aware. I mean, on the cross-border transfer issue, obviously we're involved and everybody knows all the way to, the very top as it should be um is there a discussion of the politics like there must be right yeah because i work with Anything the policy department all the time too right so we're trying to figure out when something's really bad like how to influence it in an appropriate way how to which people should we be working with yeah. who's going to have influence so that this doesn't take a bad turn um i think about the politics behind it all the time yeah, same. I mean, it's my job, but yeah, I mean, definitely. Uh, speaking of like your higher ups, Tony West. So I need you to send him my regards. Tony and I worked <laughs> together at DOJ many years ago when he was uh, the head of the civil division, I think, at the time. And I was at ENRD. He's the GC of Uber, by the way. Um, and uh, he's one of the coolest guys I've ever worked with. I mean, I was sort of mid-levelly junior back then. So I, I, you know, he was just great to be in the room with, super smart. Um, mm-hmm. 
And uh, I'm really happy for what's happening. So when you get a chance, Selen Pedro from ENRD says hi. Um, we work together on like Deepwater Horizon, which is the oil spill case and a bunch of interesting stuff when, when he was there. I think he departed before I did, but um, he's great. Like, how is it working with him? And like, what, what, like from your perspective, since you, 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 you were there before he got there, right? No, um, I got here after he got after? here. Yeah. He got here in like November of 2017. And I started in August of 2018. Okay. 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 Um, well, what's it like getting hired by him, and what's he like at work now that he's a big shot? Big oh, he's just as nice and humble as ever. Um, yeah. Tony is a very, he, he, first of all, the thing I absolutely adore about him is he was very intentional about his hires. I was one of his earlier hires, nice. and he went and handpicked experts for each role that he had open, which was a lot of people, by the way, and you can see uh, the diversity of our team. We have a lot of women. We have a couple of Latina women. We had, we lost my, our dear Kier. People are, are occasionally moving on to be GCs themselves, which is another nice. thing. He's been great about training people for bigger roles, but, um, but it shows it can be done even for, you know, really specific roles that you can yeah. find diverse people to fill them. So that was my first joy for the first time in my career. I looked around and saw a bunch of women and people of color, and I had never had that in my career to date. So that was job one. And can I say one thing about that? Like, this yeah. is why I say over and over, and Tony is a, is a black man, yeah. um, and why it's so important to have like diverse people making these types of decisions or they don't have to be the sole decider but being involved in the conversation and i'm so happy to hear you say that you witness and participate in the results of having like diverse perspectives making decisions and like that that's the this is the result and it yeah it it demystifies or excuse me it uh like invalidates the myths of oh there's nobody in the pipeline there's not enough experts yeah there are you just gotta go find them. gotta go find them and, and hunt them down and um and he also, we also have our own DNI team in the, um, in the, so his job is actually legal compliance and security, which is great for me because I work across those groups. But then he left us to do our jobs. You know, he doesn't micromanage at all. Um, and in fact, I think his one weakness is he has a really hard time giving you constructive criticism of any kind. So what you end up doing is blurting out stuff you need to work on because he's not, you know, it's a ridiculous way of managing the problem. But, you know, you're sitting here going, well, let me tell you what I think I should be doing better. And then yeah. you walk out going, why did I do that? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's one attempt one time just made me laugh out loud because at the end of it, he gave me a compliment. I go, Tony, you don't really understand how to woodshed people, do you? Because <laughs> at the same time, you're giving me a compliment. So he, he's, um, he's an extremely ethical person. He was a perfect hire for Uber. It, it gives me great comfort to know he's there watching out for things and always having my back. And I never have to worry about, you know, an ethical decision being made. That's awesome. Well, send yeah. him my regards. And um, I got to see it firsthand, many, I guess not a long time ago. Um, he's great. And I'm happy you guys get to work together. That's super cool. I feel like when someone at that level commits to diverse hiring, actually does it, it, it then very obviously filters down. Like that's that's so visible, right? So that that's just natural. Because then my team is going to look for diversity when I'm hiring on my team, and then that person right. team below them is going to look for for that too, and going to want to build that because 
I mean, the data shows that's the right move. Yeah, not just that, but we hold our um, our preferred counsel program to the, to standards as well. So nice. Yeah. What is the next big thing, Ruby? What are we What are we got to be worried about? What's around the corner on the privacy side? Oh my gosh, um, what is the next big thing? I'm so down in the weeds across the globe on everything. It's hard to pick one. If I um, let me throw one at you and tell me, and you yeah. react. Contractual necessity. Contractual necessity in what context? As a, as a legal basis. Like what, what's the future of contractual necessity as a legal basis to transfer data out or to use data, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's like any other contract. It gives you, a, you know, a document to point to when you run into a dispute. But, you know... Are you talking about user terms, Pedro? Like, are you going? I'm talking about like contractually sensitive user basis to like process data under GDPR, right? Like, I think like, well, obviously, Facebook is involved in some of, or Meta is involved in some of this about like our use of it. But I think in general, like, it, it I think contractual sensitive as a legal basis is shrinking and going I to think create. That's true. Right. Well, because terms of use like privacy notices are just impossible to know impossible impossible They're impossible so that goes back to my point of you just need to have a baseline fiduciary duty to do things that are not creepy and unexpected and untoward and unnecessary you know do i don't really mind the gdpr framework for that purpose how you mm -hmm. instantiate it can differ but the framework itself isn't so bad it does leave some leeway a lot of leeway yeah. really for a risk-based yeah. analysis yeah, yeah i think you're right about that um Okay, two more. Uh, LGPD, is it going to matter big or is it just another law? Um, it matters big where it is. <laughs> you know, we're, we, we have a pretty big presence in Brazil. Um, and we also have a lot of issues we don't have elsewhere. You know, there are a lot of safety issues and stuff in certain countries. And so um, I think it's good because it, the way the whole political regime works down there is just so fascinating and um, unexpected and un, you know, predictable. Um, and so I think it's good to have that to point to. I think it's going to take a while for people to get used to it and use it, but you could be using it like you are GDPR, which is also being weaponized inappropriately as well. So we'll see what happens, you know, when groups of people band together to, you know, spam you with, um, data subject requests for purposes of free discovery in a lawsuit, for example. Nobody really thought about stuff like that. So um, I think it's all good in the sense that they need something. Um, but again, how, how it's gonna be enforced, whether it's gonna be done you know, with equity, that's what worries me. Last one, it's 10 years from now, we're thinking about CCPA. <laughs> are, we? are we looking are we looking back at the previous 10 years saying wow that was a lot of enforcement or are we looking back at the previous 10 years saying whew, that wasn't so bad um i think that we are going to need a, a more universal u.s standard before 10 years is over when i hope to be fully retired so that ccpa will be viewed as the ignition for something that comes broadly across the US. It's probably not 
too dissimilar because if you cut it too low, there's no point in doing it. And this ridiculous argument over superseding state laws, I mean, it doesn't help at all to have an omnibus law that doesn't supersede state laws. So, um, so I think we're going to have to come to grips with that at some point, or it's just not scalable and you do no good except cost small to medium-sized businesses a lot of money they can't afford trying to comply. You are very wise. <laughs> but last question, last question for you both. What, what do you love about privacy in, in your in your day-to-day? -day? There's a lot to love about privacy. Um, I would say what we already alluded to, which is the real impact that we have on people, because we're working with personal data, not just the controls we put in place, but the things that aren't legally required that we do to make it a better experience. Um, and to be better advocates for underserved communities. Um, so I think that's what I love about it. And I really just love the people I get to work with. I don't think I've come across a single privacy professional who isn't passionate about it. I don't meet anyone who's like, I'm so bored with my job. I'm just clocking in, clocking out, biding my time. Like I don't meet people like that at all. And regardless of whether we agree or disagree on our positions, everybody's pretty full of fire about trying to do the right thing. And I love that about it. I definitely agree on the people side of things, like just the people who are top-notch and dedicated human beings that are um, committed to the work. Um, I think just the underlying premise of quote-unquote privacy is protection, like it's protecting people. Um, now that takes on a lot of different meanings depending on the context and the people uh, that you're talking about. But just like... You know, there's a guardian element to being a privacy professional, you know, like a vigilance component of it that's really attractive to me. Um, and and I think it's what motivates me. My views have changed over time about what that vigilance and that protection should look like. Um, but I think like the underlying premise of it has remained the same. It's about taking care of people and making sure people know what's happening um, and have control and that when there's abuses, um, there's intervention. I like both of your answers. Like what I love is that you can have lofty goals irrespective outside of the, nor you know, the, yeah. the, the day to day, right? You can have these lofty goals and it doesn't matter if you're the CPO of Uber, you know, ads policy at Facebook or you're the GC CPO of a venture backed startup. Like we can all have the same lofty yep. privacy goals and do our part to, to, think about them and, and kind of think about what we're doing. So to me, that's, that's one of the real benefits of this work for sure. And I do feel like a caretaker, which I think EQ that's is the most factor. important factor right now as we struggle still through COVID yeah. and work from I totally, home and all that. Totally, totally. Caretaker is the perfect way of like framing that vigilance guardian shit I was talking about. Um, um, that's perfect. I have an Uber story. I want to tell it. It's fast. Okay. Um, I, I obviously the Uber app changed everything um, and uh, for the better, in my opinion. And I think it's a great service and a great company and helps a lot of people employ themselves and helps a lot of people get where they want to go. I use before COVID, especially like was a very perpetual Uber -er, if that's a thing. Um, I live in Atlanta now, but before I lived here, I would come visit quite often. And one Sunday morning, I'm getting in 
uh, I'm getting ready to fly back to DC to go home and I call an Uber. And it was like six o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, awful. And a uh, BMW seven series, like luxury car pulls up to pick me up. And I'm like, this is crazy. Okay. I, I was like, I did not order Uber black or anything like that. Just Uber X, whatever. And so this like really fancy car pulls up and uh, the trunk pops open. And so I put my thing in the trunk, I close it and I get in the back of this Uber and in the driver's seat, um, dressed head to toe in like a Gucci outfit is a very prominent music producer. He's driving this car. I recognize him almost instantly. And I'm like, what the, like, I, I was like, what the fuck is happening? Like, did I like eat mushrooms last night? Like, what is happening? Um, and so I get in the back of this car and I'm like, are you, I don't want to say his name, but I'm like, are you who you are? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, what are we, what the fuck is going on? Are you taking me to the airport? And he's like, yes. And so he drives me to the airport. And I, you know, obviously we get to chatting and um, I'm like, why are you doing, like, I don't understand why this, why you're doing this. And he said, look, I live in this, like, whatever, cynical world of music and art and like, not Hollywood, but all that stuff that comes along with it. Um, and I don't interact with just normal people a lot. And every Sunday for a couple hours early in the morning, it's almost always airport rides. I just do Uber. And I just drive and I've met like super interesting people. I make some people's day. Some people have no idea who I am. Some people know exactly who I am, like you did and instantly. And we had this like beautiful conversation on the way to the uh, airport. I don't want to throw them under the bus, but we followed each other on Instagram and we've remained great friends. And he's just a nice guy. And um, that could not have happened but for Uber. He would never have been driving a yellow cab. Ever. And that's beautiful to me. And I'm sure there's a million vignettes like that that are way better than this one. But like, that's one of my favorite Uber stories about, you know, that I've experienced myself because it was amazing. That's a really great story. I yeah. love that story. And now I made a friend. Yeah, you'll have to introduce me. I have no idea who it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, he's, it, it's in the rap world, but, but he's <laughs> like, there are Grammys in the cabinet. It's like okay. a real. It, it wasn't Quincy Jones. No, no, no. If it was Quincy Jones, I, I would have used his name. <laughs> I, just, I think he likes the anonymity of it, you know? That's why I don't yeah, want to yeah. throw him under the bus. And I don't know if he still no, does I got you. Anonymity. Yeah. No, of but, course we're not. We're pricey people. You're not going to throw him right, under the bus. Right, that's right. That's right. But Thank anyway, that, that's Thank my you. little Uber story. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks a million for joining us. It was great to talk with you. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you, guys. Thanks for hanging out with us. And um, I know the people can't see it, but you have the best zoom background in the history of the world <laughs> I well really i got like a lot of others <laughs>